First, though, earlier today, during his media briefing, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked several questions about sentencing, about getting rid of mandatory minimum sentences. And here's just part of one of his answers. But in many cases, uh, data has clearly shown uh, that mandatory minimums disproportionately penalize uh, uh, racialized uh, individuals, including uh, racialized youth. He repeated that message several times during the news conference. We want to talk more about this. And joining me to do just that is Brian Lilly, who's a columnist with the Toronto Sun. Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Oh. oh, sorry, my face had muted the phone there. <laughs> you, oh, I thought it was me, so I'm, I'm glad we can hear you now. All good. Thanks so much for being here. Pleasure to join you. Uh, you wrote about this uh, in your uh, latest column in the Toronto Sun, because it does seem to be, and, and others have looked at this as well. On the one hand, uh, the Prime Minister and uh, the Justice Minister saying that they are getting tough on crime, but on the other hand, uh, making some changes which would actually reduce sentences for gun crimes. Yeah, and it's a strange way that they've gone about with the bill. So we heard on Tuesday that they were going to get tough on gun crime. We're going to ban guns. We're going to take guns off the streets. That's the message that they want to send to suburban mothers in Surrey, in Abbotsford, in places where the Liberals think that they have a shot at winning in the next election. And, you know, and and that goes across the, the entire country. That's the demographic that they're aiming at. You always have to look when politicians are are making announcements, especially in this pre-election period, who are they aiming at? Tuesday's announcement about getting tough on crime and banning guns was aimed at suburban mothers. But that was a bill that was just going to take away guns from law-abiding gun owners. It it doesn't focus on the criminals. And then Thursday they come out with the bill, and they frame it in a way that makes it sound like it's about racial inequality and making sure that young black or indigenous youth who make a mistake with drugs don't end up going to jail for a long time. And that can pull on the heartstrings, completely get the argument that they're going for there. But what they don't tell you is that there are more changes to the gun laws than there are to the drug laws. So that that clip that you played was him talking about the drug side of it. But there are nine different changes to gun laws that I'm sorry, if this disproportionately affects black and indigenous youth, then the answer isn't get rid of mandatory minimums. It's why aren't white people getting the mandatory minimums? I'm guessing that that's not the case. I'm guessing that in this instance, they just don't like mandatory minimums. But let let me read off the list of what they're getting rid of mandatory minimums on. Use of a firearm in commission of an offense. Possession of restricted or prohibited weapon knowing possession is unauthorized. Possession of a loaded handgun, possession of a weapon obtained through crime, weapons trafficking, unauthorized import or export of a firearm, meaning smuggling, Um, illegal discharge of a firearm with intent, robbery with a firearm and extortion with a firearm. Some of these had on the first offense, no mandatory minimum. But then on the second offense, you'd get minimum one year because you've done this twice now. Oh, third offense? You've done this three times now. We're going to give you three years. That was too much for this government. That's what they're getting rid of. And I think it's in, you know, it it goes completely against the idea that they're getting tough on crime. No, they're getting tough on law-abiding gun owners and getting easier on criminals.
And, and I find it strange the, the way, well, maybe I shouldn't, but the answers today, again, when Justin Trudeau was asked about mandatory minimums and he constantly answered the question similar to the clip that I played, but it's a completely different argument or different discussion because I think anybody listening to the long list, the offenses that you just listed off, I what I hear from people is that they would actually be in favor of tougher sentences and that these are the exact crimes that we would like to have more of a crackdown on. Exactly. And these are the offenses that, you know, most of these were put into place by the Harper government during their minority years, which means that they had to have a willing dance partner in in the opposition to help them pass it. That willing dance partner was the NDP, because Jack Layton and the NDP knew that his voters, like conservative voters, were fed up with shots being fired in the streets, whether they lived in, in Surrey or Mississauga or the West Island of Montreal, they were fed up with it because they were saying enough is enough. And what they'd been seeing were judges handing out very light sentences. And you talk to police in any city and they will talk about how the gun crimes are committed by the same people over and over again. And sometimes it's committed while they're on bail for another offense that they were on bail for. So they're on two different bails and they're still committing a gun offense and then they get bail again. And then when they go to jail, they don't go for that long. And then they get out and they start shooting again. And, and we had very mild mandatory minimums for some of these gun crimes, and they're getting rid of all of them. I get that the Harper government went too far on trying to slap a mandatory minimum on everything they could. They did that because it was popular with the voters. But eventually even voters were saying, you know what, you're going too far, this is too much. That doesn't mean you throw out everything. Mandatory minimums have been around since at least the era of a guy named Pierre Trudeau. And they've been used by conservatives and liberal governments since then at the federal level. But Justin Trudeau is trying to make it out like this is some big, mean, American, Republican-style, three-strikes-and-you're-out-law that they've brought to Canada. It's not true. I don't think that a one-year mandatory minimum sentence for someone uh, knowingly possessing an illegal firearm on their second offense is too harsh. I don't think it's harsh enough. No, and I, and I think a lot of people uh, would agree. Brian, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you. Well, it's uh, been a while since we've checked in to see what is happening with the Meng Wanzhou case, which is still uh, making its way through the B.C. court system. A bit of new information we've heard from Canada's Attorney General saying the failure of Donald Trump to be re-elected nullifies any agreement to release Meng Wanzhou on the basis that he was using uh, that uh, playing card, if you could, if you say that, to, to get a better deal with China. And we saw some court documents released yesterday in that to David Lametti saying that Meng's argument depends on public statements that were made by a president who is no longer in office. Let's bring in Richard Curland, who is an immigration lawyer and policy analyst. Thanks so much for joining us again. Be a pleasure. Uh, what do you take about this? We haven't kind of checked in to see. So what, what happens next or, or what is the next move here? Well, I'm not sure I completely understand the argument. I understand it if it's an impeachment deal for President Trump, that after you're no longer president, maybe you can't be impeached. I get that. 
But how does that logic fit in to the Canadian extradition case? Uh, President Trump's interference uh, politically uh, for the purpose of trade negotiations is there. It's on the table. It doesn't disappear because he's no longer residing on 1500 Pennsylvania Avenue. And so I don't think that the defense's argument um, that uh, connect President Trump's public statements uh, with this particular extradition case is going to go away anytime soon. Be that as it may, Jill, I think we're at a crossroads. There's been a flurry of sound bites, announcements out of both Washington, Ottawa, uh, with regard to this specific case, and importantly, uh, relationships with China. It's all going to turn on that uh, meeting between the new American president and our Canadian prime minister. Discussions, pre-meeting discussions undoubtedly have occurred. So what's the message here? Uh, today, Ottawa is saying with this um, statement from uh, Minister Lametti, uh, that uh, Ottawa still contests, yesterday it was something else. It was um, kind of a kinder, uh, more open treatment of China. Uh, and so I think Ottawa is just beleaguered with constant criticism from newsmakers regarding Canada's position vis-a-vis China, and that's going to be the context, the backdrop for the next political steps in this uh, drama uh, between two detained Michaels and one uh, palace-detained Ms. Meng. Uh, So do you think there's a connection then because the Prime Minister will not give a straight answer to numerous Mm. questions to call what's happening to the Uyghur population in China, to call it a genocide? Mm. He was asked again today and dodged the question. Is there Mm. a link between that and the cases of the two Michaels and Meng Wanzhou? Well, it's the same China basket. Right. Uh, the, 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 our prime minister would not be a good prime minister if he engages in high political risk by taking egg by egg out of the China basket for everyone to see and discuss. Where's the political capital for him were he to do that? Uh, probably uh, the prime minister's office, including those lofty advisors, would prefer uh, Ms. Meng to be back in China than to be here in Canada. I don't have any doubts about that. But how to get from A to B? It's going to take a lot of uh, political distraction and a hard negotiation. Uh, the, the actual key to the treasure chest, Jill, in all of this is Huawei. If Huawei USA can crack that deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice in Auto, I think this entire castle uh, comes down and everyone gets to go home. Uh, but uh, timeline, wow, uh, we're in the midst of Chinese Lunar New Year, so it's not the time, but I suspect by the time um, March rolls around, uh, there's going to be new pieces on that uh, Canada-China-Washington chessboard. Uh, and and um, I'm always optimistic <laughs> that the result will be pleasing to all. Uh, nevertheless, it, it, for me, it was a step backwards uh, to see uh, the Prime Minister's officer, Mr. Lametti, uh, roll out uh, this argument that um, President Trump's political interference disappears because he's no longer the American president. Uh, it's, it, it, it's in the same basket for me 
as uh, if, um, say, a physician engages in medical malpractice and says, no, 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 ignore all that. I've resigned. I'm no longer a doctor. So I get out of jail free. Right. Because the comments we're talking about, in case people don't uh, remember, uh, what did he he said? uh, I think it's it's good for what will be the largest trade deal ever made, which is a very important thing. What's good for national security? I would certainly intervene if I thought it was necessary. And that was when he was asked Mm -hmm. if he would intervene with the U.S. Justice Department in the case. Uh, So is is that the phrase Mm -hmm. then that that Mung's lawyers are still going to hang on and are, are, are going to bring up? It's buttressed by, I've never seen it before, an affidavit from White House counsel to the effect that President Trump uh, would use Ms. Meng as, as a trade hostage, as a trade pawn. And so it's not President Trump's statements uh, in of itself, by themselves, that's going to make or break. There's a lot of other supporting uh, evidence in favor of the defense. And ultimately, it's going to be our British Columbia Superior Court justice that will make literally the judgment call. Do you think, though, so what do we anticipate could change under a Biden administration? Hmm. Well, it's a turn the page. It is this particular case that can allow President Biden to turn the page to a new beginning uh, with uh, Washington, Beijing, to mutually recognize that uh, the the previous administration is not the current administration, and uh, to allow fresh consideration, if not reconsideration, of the facts on the books. And that includes what President Trump said. That's not going to disappear. It can, as part of a delicate political compromise between nations, be ignored. Uh, Water under the bridge, as it were. If it brings home our two Michaels and allows uh, uh, Ms. Mung to go forward. Uh, As a matter of practice, I, too, recoil from Ms. Mung being arrested as a... uh, uh, as an officer of a corporation, you go after the corporations, not the officers, when it's a very large corporation. And I've always had some difficulty with that approach. Uh, I think that the same team that is saying no arbitrary arrest globally, uh, with the uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, meaning the two Michaels, we can't have arbitrary arrest, we should broaden that. We should also include, at the global level, rules on when senior officers of multi-corporations should be incarcerated (laughs) based on uh, something the company did. Uh, That merits review. The same way arbitrary arrest of two Michaels merits review. We've got to fix this uh, for all nations, not just Canada and China. Uh, In the meantime, where are we at uh, with the Meng Wanzhou Mm. case? What are we expecting next? Well, I'm expecting excitement. (laughs) This is my world. (laughs) and I'm looking forward to re-entering our socially distanced uh, Superior Court in downtown Vancouver to hear the uh, continuing arguments of the defense uh, this summer, probably May. We're going to see a wrap on uh, uh, many of the uh, arguments. Uh, You never know in this case. There's always something that keeps popping up unexpected. But all in all, I suspect that uh, the decision would be taken under reserve, and it won't be uh, for weeks uh, at least uh, before the decision is revealed. So that puts us at late summer. And um, buckle up, because next is the appeal, if there has to be an appeal. So (laughs) this story is not going anywhere for uh, a considerable period. 
All right. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to talk with you. (laughs) Thanks, Jill. Keep well. Thanks for being with us. As you just heard in that news report, some new concerns about variants of COVID-19 and the fact that we have seen uh, one of those variants in all 10 provinces and seeing spread of that. And health officials in Ottawa sounding the alarm saying that this virus is modifying or mutating and new versions of itself popping up. That like the B117 variant, which is believed to be more contagious. So what does that mean as far as the numbers moving forward? because we're hearing this at the same time that we are looking at numbers that show we are making progress. Deaths related to COVID-19 are declining across the country and the number of infections also going down. Joining me is Daniel Coombs, UBC mathematician who has worked with the province on its pandemic modeling. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us again. Yeah, thank you for having me again. Uh, what do you think about uh, these uh, concerns about a strong resurgence uh, if we lift restrictions and these variants take off? Um, well, yes, it's, it's, it's a huge concern. Um, we, you know, the, the, the predictions that, that uh, were released from uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada yesterday, you know, they're another of these plots that we've seen over the last year, you know, projecting very high numbers of cases um, coming on very rapidly. Um, you know, I don't think <laughs> I don't think that those predictions are going to come to fruition because um, you know no reasonable Canadian government would allow that to happen. You know, we would see the institution of further restrictions if we were headed down that path. But this is um, this is a huge concern, um, and 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 it would be especially frustrating. You know, after all the provinces have made good progress on reducing numbers of cases, you know, over the last few months. And um, the vaccines are really just around the corner to have to, uh, to, to you know, to see strong restrictions coming in uh, um, before we get to that point where a lot of people have been vaccinated. Uh, and when we look at the numbers, though, because I think and we're going to be talking about this a bit later in the program, as far as some new polling numbers that show people who are maybe bending the rules or planning to, to travel a bit more, because I think people also see the daily numbers, the daily cases. And if we look at NBC uh, with a population of what five million, looking at the, the case numbers going down to, to just above 4,000, uh, people look at that and think that we're doing quite well. Yeah, I think I think we have done uh, quite well um, since since you know the the, the most recent uh, main changes in uh, the restrictions around here, which which came in a little bit before Christmas, um, you know, and the deaths have dropped significantly, um, and I think that's a that's a place we're already seeing the impact of the of the vaccines. Um, because, yeah, as, as you know, the, the you know the average age at death of of, of COVID cases in BC uh, is either 85 or 86, some, something like that, and um, largely in care homes and um, and, and uh, residents of care homes, and, and a lot of people. Well, as we know, all those people have now been vaccinated, um, so we should really be seeing a drop in mortality. Um, I wouldn't expect to see quite the drop in hospitalizations because those, you know, there are younger age groups, you know, people in their um, 50s and 60s uh, and 70s who who are living uh, independently who who go to hospital um, and and make up a lot of that population. Yeah, so we have have been doing well. The the real concern uh, across the country is whether we turn the corner. you know, there, there is a little bit of a mystery at the moment. You know, if you look across the border at the U.S., they've seen their case counts dropping really, really substantially um, 
and, and, and more so than we have here in BC. Um, what are they doing differently? Well, they vaccinated a lot, a lot more than we have. I don't think that's playing a huge role. But, you know, the combination of vaccine and people who have been previously exposed, neither of which we have here in BC, uh, may be contributing uh, to their more rapid drop. Um, and, you know, so that means they have some pre-existing immunity, which we don't have here, um, which, which is the, really a, a concern if the, as the variants uh, start to come in. And do, do you think that we, we look at the numbers differently as far as uh, you mentioned that, yes, we vaccinated most people in long-term care, so we will see deaths coming down. Uh, when we look at numbers, though, and say to use Whistler as an example, uh, the, the alarm bell is kind of going off because of the large numbers in Whistler, which are now also dropping. But uh, the, the other numbers there in Whistler are no deaths. And I think there were only two people that were very briefly hospitalized because we know it's a, a much younger demographic. Demographic and it's people who are living together and socializing. Uh, do things shift in that? Do we need to be frightened of those large numbers moving forward if we get to the point where the most vulnerable are protected, the most vulnerable aren't dying, but we are still seeing community spread in other groups? Yeah, this is this is the this is the reason the province took the vaccine strategy that it did, and and you know across across the country and across the world, you know, vaccinating from the oldest down. Um, make sure that when, you, especially at the beginning, when you have limited vaccine stocks to distribute, and that's definitely been the case here, that you're really protecting those people um, who are most at risk. Um, I think as we go a little bit further along, um, it would be wise to, to take a look at vaccinating people who are in, in, in jobs where they're, they're also at high risk of infection. Uh, and this is uh, with, with the goal of, of preventing transmission in the community. But certainly to start off with vaccinating those elderly people um, and people in care homes and healthcare workers um, associated with that was definitely the, uh, the, the right way to go. Um, yeah. Right, because if we get to that point, again, where, where most vulnerable populations are protected, and then we are seeing whether it's, it's a younger group that's working, say, in restaurants or working in grocery stores, and that group, even though their, their chances of getting hospitalized or their chances of dying are very low, by, by vaccinating that group, you then, don't you then stop the spread? Yeah, this, this, is, this, is, this is increasingly the picture. Um, if you'd asked me that question a month ago, I would have said, we need to, to make sure that vaccination actually prevents spread. Um, and there is now, I think, enough information that's come from Israel primarily um, where they've vaccinated a very high proportion of the population now um, compared to any, any, most anywhere else in the world. Um, that information that's coming out is showing that the spread is really being um, significantly reduced um, in addition to symptomatic illness, which is what we knew from the clinical trials would be reduced. Um, so yeah, so so vaccinating people at at high risk of infection or people pe- people who have a lot of contacts in their everyday lives, and we really need them to be doing those jobs. Yeah. Do we know enough about the variants at this point and the the fact that they are tra- transmitted easier, or how they're transmitted, or do we know enough to to kind of figure that out and balance that again with restrictions and w- with more of these cases? Yeah, I would, I would say that we we don't know too much about, about those particular details. Uh, a lot of the modeling, including the modeling that came out of Ottawa um, uh, today, is, is based on the UK. The, the UK hasn't done a great job in, in terms of COVID policy, but they have collected data extremely well. Um, it's a, very frustrating for those of us from the UK to watch all this great information about COVID 
coming from the UK, but simultaneously watching the country really have a pretty ham-fisted approach to, uh, to, to the disease. Um, and and that, that data from the UK is very compelling. It really does show, you know, uh, uh, you know maybe 50% greater um, rate of spread of this variant. And in countries in Europe where the, the variant's been around for a while now, you know, in Denmark, for example, they're, they're basically, even though the, the overall number of cases is dropping, the f- proportion of cases, which they do have, from the variants is rising. And so the same story uh, from the UK is, is basically playing out in, in other locations. And interestingly, including Israel, where they have a, a high proportion of, of UK strain, but the vaccine is working, which is which is also really good news. Tells us even if we do end up with a UK strain-dominated epidemic, um, we can expect that vaccination will will still work effectively in that case. And does it change the modeling numbers? Do you think with the new information now coming out that the vaccine, even one dose, does seem to offer enough protection that even if you get the virus, you probably won't be hospitalized. Uh, it probably won't be va- won't be fatal. So even if people don't get that second dose in that timely manner, that is still offering protection. Um. It, it probably doesn't change the modeling too much because most of the people I know working in this have, have been thinking along those lines for a while that even one dose, you know, was maybe 80% efficient and after two doses it was 90 or something. And I think that's still compatible with the data that's, that's coming out. Um, so I don't, I don't see a big change on, on that front. Um, but, yeah, it's exciting to know that one dose is, is effective. Um, you know, and as I mentioned just now, that the, the vaccine... Um, is, is being seen to be effective against the UK variant, which is um, a major, major concern, yeah. That was a major concern. <laughs> One year in, I think it's probably been almost a year since we first talked to you on this program. Are we where you thought we would be? Um, we're ahead of where, we're ahead in a good way of where, of where I thought we would be. Um, I, I don't think anybody really expected the vaccines to come as fast um, as they did in, in terms of research development and clinical trials. Um, I was kind of blown away uh, in December to be seeing the, you know, the, or even late November, the, the initial sort of rumors were coming about the vaccines. Um, I, I, I really feel like we have about a few more months of this epidemic to go. The vaccines are going to come in, in large numbers. We're going to vaccinate successfully in BC. And then where we end up at that point is, is a good question, but it's going to be a much better place than where we are now. That's for sure. Um, whether this disease is, is it ends up as a, uh, you know, a, a cold that people will sporadically have in the winter without too much ill effect, or whether we have to get revaccinated every few years, like it is with the flu. I mean, these these are interesting questions, but ones that will hopefully have a little bit more time to study rather than kind of being in crisis mode uh, as we've been for a lot of the last year. All right, uh, Daniel, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. This sounds like a very interesting research project. It involves scouring the seafloor off BC's west coast, looking for ancient underwater archaeological sites, sites that could hold clues about the earliest migration route between Northeast Asia and North America. So who gets to do this very exciting research? Well, Rob Rondo, research associate at the Museum of Archaeology and Ethnography and 
graduate student of archaeology at SFU. Uh, Rob joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jill. There was a lot of graphies that I wasn't expecting there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm a marine archaeologist at SFU. Let's just say that. That's much easier. Uh, This sounds like an amazing project. So what are you going to be doing? Well, thank you. And as you alluded to, I'm looking for the oldest archaeological sites in North America underwater. And I believe that we will find evidence of such sites on the Pacific Northwest Coast. How do you even start then to look at that? Well, this, is, this has been a, 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 a long, ongoing project. And for the last three years, what I've been doing is looking at the oldest, uh, known, most reliable, reliably dated sites uh, in North America and Alaska. And most of those are in central Alaska. So what I've been doing is studying those known archaeological sites, which date to to roughly 14,000 years ago, and seeing what I can learn from those and seeing if it's possible to find similar landscape features underwater. And therefore, if if we find similar landscapes, hopefully we'll find sites. So we're looking for if the conditions that that people were most uh, attracted to there, see if we can find similar, similar areas underwater. And so this is the goal then to obviously to figure out exactly what was happening and what took place. But will this ultimately or could this settle debates or arguments? It could. And the the reason why, why this is so challenging is first, even before you look at the idea of working underwater, is you have to conceptualize what that landscape looked like, say, 15,000 years ago. So, for example, the, the coast of, of British Columbia, it didn't look anything then like it does today. So the coast, in terms of the, the, the shoreline, in many places would have been 40 kilometers further west than it is today. And what is now the submerged continental shelf, that was exposed because in the last ice age, in the, what's called the late Pleistocene, that was all frozen. And what happened actually was is that because the, the, uh, the, the wor- worldwide, the ice basically absorbed the oceans, sea level was much lower. And then at 10,000 years ago, the beginning of the Holocene, when conditions improved and sea, uh, sea ice melted and sea levels rose, then all of that landscape that would have been previously exposed was now inundated underwater. So what I'm looking for is that landscape that First Peoples could have traveled on. And what do you specifically look for then that will tell you that, yes, someone did travel, this maybe was a a route? Well, so so first of all, uh, what I've been working on and what we'll be continuing to working on in in the next phase of this research is to understand what the paleo environment was like. And by doing that, then we can, we can reconstruct, say, for example, the, the grasses and sedges that the mammoth were eating. And, of course, we know that people were following the mammoth, and they were living on, on the mammoth and other similar megafauna. And then the next phase is then to take multi-beam bathymetry, is to basically use sonar to see underwater. And then we can visualize what the landscape underwater looks like today, and see if we can compare that to where we think we could find sites from the distant past. And then it's a matter of going to those areas and trying to excavate. And you have to keep in mind that Beringia was basically two and a half million square kilometers. So I have to narrow down that survey area and basically sort of put an X or a few X's, you know, on that large, large map to decide where we're going to look, what's the highest probability area for, for finding early archaeological sites. 
And unlike working on land where we can't dig a, a meter square, like most people will think of when they think of archaeology, we'll probably be using a combination of underwater um, advanced remote technologies, such as using remotely operated vehicles. But we'll probably also use coring, which is a means of being able to, to drill into the sediment and then, and then recover intact sediment cores, which will allow us to see if we could find, say, for example, um, bits of uh, stone, either artifacts themselves or what we refer to as debitage, the, which is the, 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 the flakes that are produced when you make stone tools. But we may also find evidence of charcoal from a fire or even bones from animals or even possibly people. Which, uh, I mean, I'm still kind of stuck on that 2.5 million square kilometers in size area because it, it's one thing, and I know you've had experience doing this as well, it's one thing to look for a shipwreck when you have a vague idea of where the ship might have gone down. But this is looking for a, a bone fragment or something in a huge area. Yeah, these, these cores, for example, are three inches. So we've reduced a meter square to three inches. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and that's the challenge. The the challenge isn't actually getting on the water and 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 doing the coring, for example. The real challenge is narrowing down that survey area, and that's what we'll be doing. We can't be on the water this year because of COVID, so it'll probably take us a couple of years to to hone in on on where we want to look. And there are some areas right now that look very promising, even before doing the the predictive modeling, such as for example the Hecate Strait between Haida Gwaii and the mainland because 15,000 years ago, that was all exposed. And we know there were mammoths living on parts of that landscape. Likewise, the same thing to the south, the Gulf Islands between Vancouver Island and the mainland, that was also exposed. And we have um, archaeological sites, and we have um, uh, sites uh, with prehistoric animals, such as bison in the Gulf Islands, that tell us that these are probable areas where people could have been living. And it's just so interesting when you talk about the, the ways that you'll be doing this as well. So remotely operated vehicles uh, going and photographing the seafloor. How difficult is it with, with visibility and with the type of water and that that you're dealing with? Well, I'm, I'm, that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. So that's sort of what I, that's, you know, what I bring to the, to the, to the table in, in, in this project is, is my, my experience in using different technologies. So you're right, visibility you know, is a factor. And you know, if we can use um, you know, cameras uh, on a remotely operated vehicle, that's great. Uh, but that's also one of the advantages of using sonar, because with sonar, it doesn't necessarily matter what the visibility is. So you can get very detailed imagery of what the, the seafloor looks like, even if the, 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 the actual sedimentation in the water makes it impossible to see. And you mentioned you can't get out on the boats this year because of the pandemic. How, how is the timeline working then for this? So when do you expect that you might get some results? Well, I'm fortunate that I, I, I was awarded uh, what's called the, uh, the Shirk PhD scholarship uh, for my research. So it's, it's a three-year program. So I'm hoping that uh, in, in, in this first year, largely because, as I said, we're limited with COVID, we'll, we'll do the, the predictive modeling and, and decide where we're going to put the X. And then in the following year, then we'll look at doing some what we refer to as proof of concept in terms of what technologies may work in what areas. And then in the third year, actually getting out on the water and, and doing, some, doing some drilling.
And will you also be able to tell, like you mentioned, some of these areas that used to be completely not underwater, which now are, uh, will you be able to see also, I mean, you're looking for these these uh, evidence of who was there at what time. Will you also see, though, kind of a better history of the area and what's happened and be able to use that as far as what we're, what we're in store for in the future? Well, one of the things that that, uh, that makes this this project um, both challenging and unique is there's been very little um, study of of the sediments on all of the Pacific Northwest coast. So we're just adding to our scientific understanding of uh, of the seafloor. And what what I'm most interested in is is reconstructing what the paleo environment looked like in the past. So. The biologists, the geologists, you know, even if we don't find a single archaeological artifact, they'll still be very happy to receive those cores because it helps them in their research in understanding what the coast looked like 15,000, 18,000 years ago. It's so interesting. What drew you to this or got you involved in doing this kind of work? Well, I, I've been a marine archaeologist for over 20 years, and, and as you pointed out, I've, I've mostly worked on, on shipwrecks. But I started out in my career as a terrestrial archaeologist, and so I, you know, I dug my meter squares as an undergraduate. And uh, so now I'm sort of coming home to, to, to terrestrial work, but I'm using the skills that I've developed in my career as a marine archaeologist to, to, to be able to excavate underwater. All right. We'll be looking to see uh, what happens uh, with this and updates moving forward. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jill.